Last week we started talking about this in 2 Peter chapter 3, where Peter said, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, by both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. He is talking about the beloved sheep that he is an under-shepherd with, knowing that the, the chief shepherd loves the sheep. And he has left the awesome task of his under-shepherds, if you will, to guard the sheep, to feed them truth, and to teach them, as Paul says. One of the greatest things that the Apostle Paul wrote about the reasonings for the church is in first is in Ephesians chapter 4. We've talked about it a lot. Equipping for the ministry of the saints, raising up mature Christians. Why? So they won't be swayed. Amen. They won't be swayed by everyone of doctrine. They won't by the cunning devices of men. It's exactly what he says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11. These people are going to come in and there's Satan's behind them and they're going to appear righteous and they're going to appear great and they're going to be able to talk and they're going to do all these things, but they're going to lead you astray. The false prophets, the false apostles, the deceiving people. Jude says again, they'll creep in unawares. Where did these people come from? They're going to creep in, they're going to sound good, and they're going to sound right, but they're not. Jesus Christ said, beware. False prophets are going to rise. They're going to abound. They're going to deceive many. So if you look at these epistles, uh, a large percentage of them are warning, you know, and, and telling that these things are going to happen. I don't believe that the church is warning today like it should. I don't. I believe that the watchmen are far and few in between. We need to be watchmen on the walls so that when danger comes, we sound the alarm, we protect those that we claim to love. You know what? Tell me something. If you say you love your wife and you let somebody come and, and, and mug her, rape or whatever, do you, and you let this happen, do you really love her? No. Your love is proved by how you act, by what you do. He's going to stir up, by the way, a reminder, like we said last week, some of these people are probably going, you know what, and like they do in the church today, I am tired of hearing about sin and judgment. I'm tired of hearing about the plight of, of the lost and what we need to do. I'm tired of hearing about Jesus coming back and his judgment. So I'm going to go someplace else that's going to teach about having my best life now. I want to go somewhere else that's going to teach me and, and feed my flesh. That's what, what's happening, you know. These humanistic, liberal churches that are abounding in the name of Christ are feeding solely people's flesh, people's lust, people's... Everybody wants to be stroked, so to speak. That's the feeding. And Peter is saying, I am willing that people are not going to like me. They're going to, they're going to, in fact, you know what? They're going to crucify me, and that's exactly what they did. But they're not going to want... They're going to get tired of hearing about sin and judgment. They're going to be tired about this. Well, then, you know what? Then Judas the same, faced the same plot. Because we're not only earnestly contend for the faith which was once for all given to the saints, but we're to understand that, that there is a battle going on here for the truth. And it's a fierce battle. And I think it would do well if some of us would realize how fierce this battle really is. It is so fierce that... That cultivating of the battle of Armageddon, the armies of the world will turn to destroy the truth. 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the whole world militarily will come against wicked man to destroy this truth. That's what's happening in the churches today. They're laying the way for the Antichrist. They're not speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord of our souls. They're teaching about some false Christ who promises peace and safety and no judgment. And by the way, you know, uh, I, I paved the way for your sin, but a lot of these places are saying he didn't pay it 100%. Yes, he did. He paid it 100% on the cross when he bowed his holy head and he said, it is finished. Amen. And he gave, he said, Father, in thy hands I commit my spirit. So beloved, I'm not writing to you because I'm fearful of you, he's saying. I'm writing to you in the second epistle by I want to stir your minds up again. Verse 2, that you may be mindful of the words which are spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior. Wow. He said in chapter 2, verse 1, he said there were false prophets among the people back then. There's going to be false teachers among you. That's what he's saying here uh, in the second verse of chapter 3. You may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the prophets. And of the commandment of the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water in the water, by which the world then, that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Verse 7, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, we talked about that last week, some uh, versions don't use the, by the same word, but the, the understanding of language in the context means that by this word of the authority of the word of God, just as at, in the authority of God's word, the earth perished with water, the authority of God's word, the same authority of power is going to destroy the earth and the heavens by fire. So we can be assured of it. So it's being reserved, verse 7, by the same word that was reserved for fire until the day of judgment, perdition of ungodly men. We'll read down verse 10. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. We'll touch on that just lightly. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. But his long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Then when we get to verse 10 and down, we're going to talk about the day of the Lord and the coming of him in judgment. Okay. I, I ended last week with this quote, and I love it. Um, I got it down right this time by Tim LaHaye, speaking about the verse, uh, verse 8, about the, the Lord one day, is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. And I, you know, you can look at Psalm 90, you know, the, the Psalm of Moses and so forth, and all through the Word of God, talking about the, you know, the, the morality of life and the absolute understanding that God is separate from his creation. God is not a pantheistic God. 
In other words, he's not in everything, and not everything speaks, and all. He is separate from his creation, yet he's totally involved in it. In fact, he's so involved, the writer of Hebrews says that he holds up the whole universe by the word of his power. He's powerful. But listen to what Tim LaHaye says about that verse, verse 8. I love it. God is present everywhere. He is not limited by time and space. He is not bound by the, nat- by the natural or the normal flow of time, as humans experience it. A thousand years is but a brief span to one who inhabits eternity. Conversely, a day with the one who knows all things at all times might seem like a thousand years to finite mankind. This is a little bit of a twist on the fact that God, again, is indeed eternal. He is indeed separate from his, his, uh, his creation. So we see where these men are going, wait a minute. They're going to, you know, they're going to say, what is the promise of his coming? You don't understand, man. Thousands of years have gone by, and we made the comment last time, which spoke to me when I first uh, heard it, and see, I, I want to constantly understand it, is the fact that, you know what, when we feel bad, the sun still comes up. When we feel good and we're elated, the sun still comes up. When a family member dies and is black and gloomy, the sun comes up. When everything's going great and I get that promotion and things are going great with my wife and everything else, the sun still comes up. What? What are you talking about? Judgment. What are you talking about? There's a day coming. If man can rightfully alleviate the day of judgment, he has no fear of consequences, right? I mean, you know. If I can get a social gospel going where I prepare not only the good that I can do to please a a quote-unquote vengeful God, but if I can relate to a place and fix a place and fix it up so my Lord can come back, where is the, the talk of judgment? I have no judgment. And therefore, when Peter says the judgment begins in the house of God, they don't rightly divide the word of truth and realize that God is not speaking of judgment against ungodly men. He is speaking about purifying the bride of Christ. We not only will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, not for condemnation, but for rewards or loss of them. Remember one thing. Salvation is a present possession. Rewards are a future attainment. That's how we can differentiate between that. So he wants to stir our minds up by this. Don't let those come in and tell you that judgment is not coming. Don't let those come in and tell you that the prophets of old, well, that was for them. Well, wait a minute. Uh, how come Daniel talks about a future time of tribulation? How come the prophets talk about a future time of a Messiah reigning on the throne of David, who you say that your prophets now have no validity, is what he's saying. We need to be mindful of the words that were not spoken of by the prophets, but that we have received directly from our Lord and Savior. He says in verse 3, knowing this, you need to know this, that there will scoffers will come in the last days. And now they're coming in all kinds of shapes and sizes in the church now, in this false church. You know, uh, well, it's demonic to talk about. Um, and look, look this up. This is, this is not new with me. This is all documented material. Well, it's demonic to teach about a, 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 a rapture, a, a, a catching away of the saints. You're, le- you're leading your, your, your churches astray. You know, yes. 
Christ isn't coming back for his church. What are you talking about? Uh, you know, we're going to go through this horrible tribulation, and, and, you know, and then they try to take the... Tw- we're going to see this at the end of this epistle, and all this will come together. They're taking the salvation of the Lord and then twisting it. Like Paul has some things that are hard to understand. But they're twisting it and they're contorting it. And they're taking God's timeline and they're just desecrating it. So nobody can understand what's going on. They're fearful, they're frightened, but they want somebody to teach them. So please spoon feed me because I don't know the word and I don't know what's going on. Is that what the word of God teaches? No. We are to be in the word of God, let it get into us, and rightly divide the word of truth. God is a God of judgment. You cannot get it apart from it. God judged the Egyptians. God used the flood. God used the Tower of Babel. God used the Egyptians. All through the Bible, you can go chronologically from Genesis to Revelation, and God is a God of judgment. He must, or else he is not a righteous, holy God. He must judge sin in judgment. It's either going to be judged on the cross of Jesus Christ for you as an individual, or it, or you will face him as judge. It's not going to happen. Because, you know what? It tells you why they say that in verse 3, knowing that scoffers will come. Why are they going to come? Because they're walking according to their own lusts. That's what they're doing. They're not considering anything of the Word of God or anything of, of, of past history or anything, they're walking according to their own lusts. You know, there was a poll that was taken out several years ago, and people from 25 and under, most of them instinctively know that something's coming. Instinctively know that something is going to happen. They don't know what, they can't explain what, but they know there's a buzz in the air, so to speak. They know something is not right, and something's going to happen. But yet these guys will come and say, you know what, God's not coming. Come on, read your history. We got billions and billions of years of evolution, right? The dinosaurs were created four or five billion years ago. Really? Judgment? What? You kidding me? Saying they work the same earth we walk. It comes in so many different ways now. Uh, Thomas McMahon of the Brilliant Call stated this one thing years ago, talking about stuff like this. You can put your finger on it and kind of catch the false teaching. He said, now it is so rampant. And other people like Warren Smith and other people that, have, that make their living doing these things, have said the same thing. It is so rampant. These scoffers coming at such an alarming rate, proclaiming such audacity of, of false hope, that it is almost, well, it's grievous and it's very tiring trying to warn the body of Christ of all these things. It seems like every time you turn around, a new scoffer is coming with new material. But we see it because of their own lust they're coming And Peter says, I am going to go to my deathbed reminding you to stay steadfast in the Lord, to rely on His Word and His Word alone. The prophets said it. We're saying that the Lord Jesus Christ has died. He has risen again. He's coming back again. You have Paul instinctively, the apostle, the risen Christ, speaking the grace and the the, the mannerisms of the church, the future hope of the church, and, and so forth and so on. Stay glued to the Word of God. Do not look anywhere else. Look at the Word, and the Word alone. Because they're going to walk according to their own lust. Are you going to listen, of course, to somebody's lust? And, and, and it doesn't... We need to define lust, and we have before. Lust is not just sexual. Sexual is a byproduct of that. Lust is the want and the, greed and the need that they feel to satisfy themselves. 
And people want to be people of predominance, so they want to issue their false interpretations, their false findings. They want to have the preeminence. They're like the Pharisees that on the street corner were doing those long prayers and everything, and they want to applaud, and they want people to go, ooh, and ah. And Jesus said, don't, uh, don't, don't look at them. Don't pay heed to them, because all they want is immediate applause. That's going to get the response. But the Word of God endures forever. And I'll tell you what, my prophet, my Lord, my God said that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Always thinking of your mind. Always transforming your mind. We talked a few, um, I don't know, it was last week or some um, sometime. Very difficult message for me to give, but... But one of them encouraged me, I think, is because it's encouraged me, you know. Remember back in Romans 12.1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's absolutely opposite of what these guys do, because they're coming and they're mocking, and they're walking after their own lusts. And God says, you, my people, I want you to offer your bodies a living sacrifice. And here is partly how to do that. Holy accept of God, which is a reasonable service. It is only a reasonable service to do that. In the light of who God is, what He's done, it's only reasonable. You know, some translations say spiritual, which it is, but it's only reasonable. But He says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How do we know the will of God? By the Word of God. And it's God's will that nobody perish. But all, verse 9, should come to repentance. That's God's will. If there is no judgment, there is no fear of perishing. If there is no judgment to come, there is no burning desire for the Great Commission. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Teaching them, commanding me all that I have taught you. Teach them everything that I've taught you. Baptize them. Make disciples. Make disciples of what? Well, Paul gives you an example of disciples of what? In Acts 20 when he was leaving. This, is, I think, is one of the most definitive passages on the New Testament about what's happening in these last days. He said, men will rise you know, speaking first thing, leading disciples after them. Okay? We're to make disciples after the Lord Jesus Christ and stand on His Word and feed His Word and Word is the truth. It's the first and last Word. It's the final authority. The Bible says that we have been a court and us as Christians have been in court only to find out that nothing is laid to our charge. The judge declares not guilty because his judgment fell on Christ. That's his solid word. My judgment fell on Christ. It is Christ or judgment. So he says in verse 4, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Wow. Again, for since the fathers fell asleep, all that continues. For this they willingly, verse 5, forget that this, by the word of God the heavens were of old, you're standing out of water and in the water. Wait a minute. Let's start realizing something here. That they're walking out to their own lusts. Create, our evolutionists don't believe this. Evolutionists don't believe in, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. They don't believe that. That's evolution. Evolution, my friends, has crept into the church. And they, but they pretty it up by saying, well, it's theistic evolution. You know, God still has a part in it, but still the, the passage of time in evolution still applies. In other words, the dinosaurs probably were made, created millions of years ago, but God did that. Really? You're calling God a liar. God says in six literal days, I created. And on the seventh day, I rested in satisfaction. That is a fact. So now you have people walking after their own lust, verse 3. Why are they walking after their own lust? Because they willfully forget that not things, they, things have changed. There have things that have been happening. They Then they don't think about anything in verse 5 because they're evolutionists and they think that God, uh, for some reason, lied when he said six literal days and you get some people, and I've sat with one of them years ago. Oh, this guy... You know, he's going to seminary, he's getting all his degrees and all that. Please don't forgive me that, don't think that I'm against all this higher learning. But you know what his higher learning brought him? Well, you know, the word day, in the first chapter of Genesis, means a lot of different things. It could mean a 24-hour period. And, you know, I really don't know. He goes, God could have created things six days, but more than likely, probably used millions of years to do it. That's what our higher learning is doing. Are you a better teacher than the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit? So you have all kinds of things in these verses. Men are going to laugh at judgment. If God has not judged the world in millions of years, why would he judge it now? If the Hitlers and the Pol Pots were then and no more, why would he judge it now? Are we any worse? Things have gone on the same way it's always been. You know? People still fall in love. People still fall out of love. People still are born. People still die. People give in marriage. People do all these things. And believe me, uh, I kind of envy Barbara for how she grew up. Because I didn't. I, I would have never guessed about judgment. All I was looking at for my, again, I hate to keep using this phrase, but my best life now. I would have been one that just sucked right into that stuff. You know? Remember that book in the 70s I talked about before called Looking Out for Number One? That was my Bible. That was awesome. <clears throat> How to be on top of everything. Judgment? Are you kidding me? By the way, I, I believe in evolution. So, so judgment's, uh, wow. Look at verse 6, by which the world that then existed perished. Being flooded with water. Ooh, now we have people saying, well, what was it really a worldwide flood? I think it was localized, wasn't it? Always scoffers coming. Always people trying to speak away the word of God. And it all leads to the fact that judgment is coming. We'll see that verse 10 down. Yes. Verse 7, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment of godly men. You know, you and I as Christians know this. The world outside that knows that something's going on, the world can't continue. They know that something's happening, but they don't know what. But you and I know that God says that this world is headed for judgment. 
They're going to try to unite together. I know what let's do. Let's, let's, the world's going to unite together to get this one world government and everything, and that's how we're going to protect ourselves. That's how we're going to make everything go great, right? Because everything's falling apart right now. God's going to, why is that allowed to happen? He's going to show the whole world that without him, there's disaster. There's fightings. There's wars. There's hatred. We're getting a one-form government. That's going to do it. The UN. The UN's going to solve all the problems, right? No. So this judgment is reserved for a certain individual. What is that? Ungodly men. It doesn't take very long to see, and with religion and, and outside influences, that men don't view themselves as ungodly. Men are prideful. Men want to see the good things, you know. I told you last week of the archaeologist that made a good point about the Scriptures being the Word of God, because other writings of antiquity and other nations in the past have always written about their conquests, their, their survival, their, their great victories. And the Jewish scriptures are the only ones that say, yeah, talk about the victories of, of the Israelites, but their defeats as well. See, that's what the Bible does. It goes right and it swells to the heart of men, the pridefulness of men. So we see that this judgment's to come is based on what God's done in the past, what God says is going to happen in the future, but this judgment's honed a little bit further. It's uh, for the perdition of ungodly men. Now we have a problem. Now we have a hatred. But look at verse 8. But beloved, do not forget again this one thing. That with the Lord, one, a thousand, or one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness. That's an important verse. God knows that men count time and count things absolutely different. That's why Isaiah says, God says to Isaiah, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Even as higher than the heaven is from the earth are so far as my thoughts are from yours. God knows that men are like this. But the Lord is not slack. Again, he's not, he's not easing off on his promise. What God's word says he is going to do. My dad used to have a saying that he said, say what you mean and mean what you say. That's God. He's not slack. Just because you think that things should be done in a different way, God has his, his timing. And this is what's going to happen. Because he doesn't want you to perish. He's long-suffering. Long-suffering, as we've talked about a lot through the years, and I hope you remember it. It is a one step further. It's patience that's involved in long-suffering, yes. But long-suffering is bearing under a load that hurts patiently. And that's what God is doing. He is seeing His Son every day for thousands of years being spit upon, desecrated. He watched His Son being beaten and nailed to a cross. He saw His Son bearing the sins of the world. He is going on with the world that if in our vernacular, you know, if we want to be truthful here, if we think that God is slow and slack and nothing will happen, we also need to think that God is long-suffering because by now, if it was me, I would have ended this rebellious world. I wouldn't have the patience and the long-suffering with this rebellious world. They hate my Lord. They want to do away with him. They take his, 
his wonderful sacrifice and his beautiful life and they crucified him. And they hate him now more than they ever had. They would crucify him or do some terrible thing if he was in the world now, just like they did then. And yet God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. This is the key. It's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why God is a God of judgment. He must judge sin, but yet he's patient. The flood judgment had a specific pattern. The judgment came suddenly. Again, we talked about this last week, but only after a period of grace. Noah, constantly a preacher, the Bible says, of righteousness. Constantly speaking. People are going, wait a minute, there's no clouds in the sky. What are you doing? You're a fool. You're a fool. You're building this boat, and you're... you're, you're, you're t- what? The last thing they were expecting was judgment. The last thing. People were married, giving marriage, or having fun, and you know. And by the way, Jesus says that's going to be one of the signs. Exactly in the days of Noah. The last thing they expected was judgment. This judgment pattern is an inherent feature of God's rule as explained not only in the Mosaic Covenant, you see it in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, but listen, this is, it is the biblical answer to the problem of evil. It is the biblical answer to the problem of evil, is judgment. God cannot allow evil to slip through the door. And if we think that, or if anybody listening thinks that, we have a warped understanding of who God really is. Our God is holy. Our God is just. But our God is also merciful. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's determination to deal with the consequences of the fall extends not only to Israel, but also to all nations. The Old Testament prophets announced coming judgment within this pattern. Their prophecies of future judgments, therefore, use the vocabulary of these past judgments. Listen to this. The same fire, smoke, hail, thunder, and plague, and earthquake of the Old Testament judgments will once again appear in Revelations chapter 6 through 18. Think about that. They point to a final culmination in God's program of separating good from evil throughout all creation. God's past judgments thus model his future judgments. Wow. But the day of the Lord, verse 10, the day of the Lord, this particular phrase appears, you know, Acts chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We can get a great summary of the day of the Lord starting Isaiah chapter 10, tracing all the way through the Revelation chapter 19. The day of the Lord not only is, is convening in the days that God uh, directly appeared in the affairs of men, but it culminates in a great act of the removal of evil. The consequences of evil will meet their just end. My just end ended at the cross. 
That's why God says that he can be just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. That's mercy. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? There's another reason why. Judgment and looking at these things produces something. It produces the fact of, of godliness and a great conduct knowing that the end of all things is at hand. Just as the looking of the, of the Lord, uh, we'll read in, in the next coming weeks in First John, how he says that just knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back will purify your lives. Those that are abiding in Christ won't be ashamed at his coming and so forth. The understanding of judgment coming will change our conduct. We are not the ways of the world anymore. Our, mind, our minds will be transformed. We don't walk in the principles of the world because the world is going to judgment. You know? Verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. How much more does he have to say about what God is doing? By the same word, judgment is going to come. God said it. I believe it. Christ did it. That settles it. Amen. God in the past fulfilled everything perfectly, just like he said he would. He's going to do it in the future. We've heard these things for years now. Wednesday, we're studying, we're going through the minor prophets. We hear these things. But that's what Peter's doing. You know, the very same things we talk about here in judgment, Peter's talking about, he, he's stirring their minds up. You know, people are forgetful. People need to be hammered things. You know, people say, well, why did Jesus say things over and over again? Well, if you ever looked at sheep, you'd know why. We need to understand that God is serious about this. And he talks about the day of the Lord uh, as a running theme all through the scriptures. And like we read before, the pattern of judgment has been used in the past. It models God's judgment in the future. God was just, merciful, and forgiving in the past. He will be just, merciful, and forgiving in the future. And that future of the day opening of grace is now. Avoid the judgment. Come to Christ. I'm talking about this new heavens and a new earth. Look at verse 13 real closely. Nevertheless, we, according to this promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. A new heavens and a new earth. That's what we look forward to. Let me just, just uh, if you will, if you want, turn to, uh, turn to Revelation 19. Actually, Revelation 21. This is exciting. Wow. I love it. You know, the Bible is beautiful. Just beautiful. Beautiful in the way that it describes things. Beautiful in the way that it explains things. Beautiful in the way that it pictures God's mercy and God himself. 
But here we get a glimpse of, of this new heavens and new earth. You know what's really amazing to me? You have cults that go around, we'll talk about a day of a new earth and whatever, all that stuff. They have no idea what they're talking about. Because God, in his richness of judgment, comes first before this new heavens and new earth. So you know that there's something seriously wrong. Because God, in the beginning, when he created everything, he said, it is good. Was it, you know, and now it must be destroyed. Because not only, you know, the flood was a great mercy. It really was. It was a tyrannical God that was just wiping things away because one, two, it was a great mercy for all the generations to come. Because in Genesis 6, 5 says, when God saw the imagination of men, it was only evil and wicked continually. He saved, he was a mercy of what he did. He saved eight persons, a preacher of righteousness, and through this line, through Shem, came all the blessings that you and I have received. We could the thread of redemption is, is absolutely wonderful. But look at this uh, Revelation twenty one. Remember, we're going to talk about looking for new heavens and new earth. Revelation twenty one. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I John saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Wow. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. He himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these things are true and faithful. And he said, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the Lord Jesus Christ. The beginning and the end, I will give the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. Freely to him who thirsts. Wow. Freely. All that would come to him. All that would, would come to him in, in repentance and, and to repent of their sins and turn to Christ who bore the punishment for them. They would have not only everlasting life, forgiveness of sin, but they are invited to share in the eons of joy and, recre and creation, everything of God. You know, there says a thing that about the throne of the judgment. When all wicked men stand before the judgment throne of God, the great right throne judgment, there is a thing that the Bible says that puts all this in context. The heaven and the earth fled away. They were done. Nothing but a born-again person in Jesus Christ will be able to stand before a holy God in judgment. And the world says that's narrow-minded. That's what God says. Nothing will stand in the judgment other than one who has been born again and has their sins forgiven in Jesus Christ. It is literally Christ or judgment. How can you, how can you talk that? 
How can you beat that? You know, the Bible describes salvation in such a way. The world looks at it as, how can a man 2,000 years ago die on a cross and forgive me of my sins? You know? There was a God through Eon's past who had a plan. Because he loved you. And since you cannot atone for your own sins because your heart is wicked, and you not only sin because you have a sin nature, you sin willfully because you want to because you're wicked. You know, we're sinners. And we sin because that's who we are. Sinners. And God says, I have a plan. I'm going to send my son. And he's going to die on a cross to forgive you of your sins. And he's going to raise from the dead three days later. It's proof to the world that God is satisfied that Christ had died for the sins of the world and he beckons all who come, come. Come. Come to the cross and have your sins forgiven you and God will cleanse you of your sins, make you a new creation and you will dwell with him forever. Not only beholding. You know, this is a wonderful thing right here. Before we finish the rest of this, I want to, I want to say one thing here. We, as, as a church, as the body of Christ, we've talked about this before. Do you know what your future is? Spend some time going, waiting to go to sleep or what have you, thinking about what your future is from this day on. Your future is the Lord Jesus Christ. Your future is heaven. Your future is watching your Lord execute judgment. Your future is watching your Father creating the heavens and the earth. Your future is with Him. And if that's not all, your future is that every day you get to know that nothing can overtake you. Nothing can cause your demise. (laughs) This is our future. says, nevertheless, in verse 13, we, according to his promises, look for new heavens and new earth, wherein righteousness dwells. Where the body of Christ will live forever. Jesus is preparing a place. Wow. Therefore, beloved, verse 14, looking forward to these things. Looking forward to these things. Be diligent to be found in Him in peace without spot and blameless. He says, be diligent. Proverbs chapter 12 says this, verse 27, Diligence is man's precious possession. Diligence is an act of the will, and diligence says that I will put every preconceived notion aside, all my interests aside, all my understandings aside, and I will be diligent to be found abiding in my Lord. I am Him and His alone. It's man's precious possession as proven over the test of time. Even evil men have proved that diligence was their possession, which ended up being their demise. He says, be diligent and found in Him in peace. The Bible says that peace is abiding in Christ. Jesus explained what peace is in John 14. Remember 14, 27? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not 
As the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. We're not afraid of what's happening and what's going to happen. I'm back in Joshua chapter 1. Don't be afraid. Again, trying to, trying to lead two, 2 million people in the promised land that were so fickle that one day they loved you and the next day they wanted to stone you. And then he says also, the third one, he says, not only be diligent, be at peace, but be without spot and blameless. Blameless. Wow. Blameless does not mean sinless. But the Bible says in Psalm 37, 37, you should be able to remember that. 37, 37, it's an interesting thing. He said, mark the blameless man and observe the upright for the way and the future of that man is peace. So we want to be found in him. Diligent. Are you diligently seeking him? Are you diligently following? Are you diligently believing his word? Are you diligently absorbing his word and believing every word of it and understanding it and obeying it? Are you found at peace in him? Are you abiding in Christ? Holding no bars, forsaking all others? Everything you do during day and night, thought processes and everything else, Christ is welcome to share it with you? Or do you have something to hide and he, he stands outside the door for a while? That's not peace. And to be spot and blameless. We don't want to have anybody. Your accuser stands before God night and day accusing the brethren. We already have accusations from without. Are you going to be one to cause them from within? Or are you going to be blameless and upright and walk with Him? Admitting your faults. Admitting you're wrong. Admitting when you've sinned. Come to God real quick. Make short accounts with God. If you've sinned, come to Him. Confess your sins. Go on. That's part of being humble. That's part of, of having a humble attitude before God. Is when the, the Spirit convicts you of sin, go just immediately to God, confess your sins. Keep that fellowship unbroken. Verse 15, and consider that there was long-suffering of God. There we go. Long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, has written to you. As in all his epistles, speaking them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. I love the Bible. The Bible is so practical. You know, how many people have said, I'm just not like you. Like, I just, I, I don't know as much as you. And I, I don't, you know, the Bible is so practical. Nobody is going to go, I can understand everything. I know everything. And by the way, look out, I've just graduated with a PhD and you better do what I said because I know it all. Peter, the apostle Peter, who lived with Christ for three years, who saw him raised from the dead, who appeared to him, is admitting that these things that the apostle Paul is talking about, salvation and the grace given to the church, and some things, these are difficult to understand, so take courage. Just because you don't have all the understanding, God will open your eyes. God will give you understanding. Hang in there. And by the way, the apostle, the same apostle writes this, that no scripture of prophecy is given by private interpretation. In other words, we can look at it two ways. I think the bigger way is that no scripture will be taken out by itself and built anything on, but also no prophet was given the whole picture. God had prophets from all, all the way through. 
They would prophesy, lay down their pen in death. Hundreds of years later, a prophet would pick up that pen and continue on. You take all things as that inverted triangle. Remember the Word of God and settle it right down what you're looking at. Take the whole of the Word of God. So Paul has gotten wisdom. Paul was the apostle of the risen Christ. You know? He received, you know, the, the truths in Galatians and Romans and so forth by the risen Christ himself. He says, these things, some of them are hard to understand. Which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction. As do also the rest of the scriptures. Wow, wait a minute. There's your understanding right there. They twist the understanding. Once you twist in one area, you start twisting in another area. Next thing you know, the Bible's an all-knotted thing. You don't have an incongruent thing. Can, you, they can't stand up and tell you from Genesis to Revelation, that thread of redemption, how God deals with people. His thing, remember, judgment is a big proponent of, of the content of this chapter here. They can't tell you that God's precedent for judgment is, is, was preceded by His mercy, but God, it always ends in judgment. It's, it's the, the Bible's problem for evil and so forth. And then we want to have a right understanding of the Word of, of God so we don't get led astray. So Paul is telling about salvation and how it comes down, but he said, hey, there are going to be things that you don't understand. But you know what? Don't be untaught. Don't be unstable. Because these people twist it to their own destruction as they do the rest of the Scriptures. Therefore, beloved, since you know this before, and beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to Him be glory both now and forever. You know, when we consider the long-suffering of our Lord as salvation, when you look at that word salvation, I believe that the, that the, the Apostle here is talking about all the salvation of God. You know, and of course it's the salvation of how we get to be saved. There's no one else. Paul gives the very direct meaning in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, 2, and 3 of what the gospel really is. This is the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried, and three days later he rose again according to the scriptures. This is the gospel on which we stand. This is the gospel by which we are saved. Period. That gives validity to what he says in Galatians 1 about the perverting of the gospel. There's some out there that want to pervert the gospel of Christ and make, make it so easy to, to get into a false teaching and say, well, yeah, it's Christ, but. Yeah, well, it's Christ, but. The presence of sin. Paul talks immensely about what it means to walk in this life, on this earth, being a saved person. Christ dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. We have inherited a divine nature, but that sin nature is still in there. But the power, because of the presence of divine nature abiding in Christ, that power of sin is being broken. It no longer has the hold that we once had. And then he also talks about, again, the third part of salvation, when we will be with Christ where sin won't even be in the presence of us. Paul wrote about the return of our Lord. The salvation. He is coming back. We are, we are to 
wait for his son from heaven. That's exactly what it means to watch, is to wait for us as far as the imminent return of the Lord. Instead of, you know, it's a watching. It's a waiting. We wait for him to come back. It's imminent, so it's hanging. The, the meaning of imminency is it's hanging over the head, and there's nothing left. It can happen at any moment. There's nothing left to happen before it does. That's what imminency means. Paul talks about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Do you know that when Christ comes back and snatches us away, we will be with him forever? Don't sit under a teaching that is going to twist these things. Don't sit under men that, that will twist these things in their own destruction. How do I know? We know by first and foremost the word of God. Judgment is coming. Untaught and unstable men twist or rest to their own destruction and to those that hear Can you imagine what the epistles would be like if they had no warning in them? That would be cruel, wouldn't it? We're called to be watchmen, but we don't know what we have to watch for. We're called to be watchmen and careful, but we don't know how the enemy works. God tells us so much if we would just open our eyes, our heart, and our attitude when we get into his word. Are we getting into his word knowing this is the word of God? I ask that again. When we open the Word of God, I've had so many, not so many people, but too many over the last years that I've heard or, or, or whatever. I, you know, it just doesn't seem God speaks to me anymore. We've talked about this before. Do you ever say that? Or do you ever feel that? It's tempting. <clears throat> but you're wrong. <clears throat> Every time you open up the Bible, the Word of God, that is God speaking to you. Are we listening? Do we come with it in reverence and awe and fear? When we open up the Word of God and God says, I love you, are we, are we taking that as eagerly or more eagerly as if our spouse or brothers and loved ones say, I love you? come to it with, with eagerness. God speaks. Every time we open up His Word, I revere it, and He speaks. Peter ends his, his last uh, divinely written word, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Now I'm not, I'm not a I'm not dealing in semantics here, but but originally this verse is but grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We don't grow into grace, we grow in grace. We are born again. We have had the, the love of Christ lavished upon us, the grace of Christ lavished upon us. We grow in grace. But we grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, Peter's first epistle emphasizes grace eight times. In his second epistle, he emphasizes knowledge six times. This is important. We grow in grace. We're not going to grow up someday to salvation. We grow in salvation. 
We are saved. We're growing in our salvation. We're growing in, our, in the position that has already been laid for us. So like how Lindsay wrote in that book, there is a new world coming, you know, and you and I have all the, the blessings and the privileges of knowing that whatever God is doing, we will be right there with him. You know, from chapter 19 in Revelation, verse 11, all the way through, we are going to be there with Christ. I believe that the Bible is summarized by this great understanding in chapter 4 of Revelation that we will, we will go up with him. But also in, in Revelation 19 says, To the seer John in the Revelation, that door with great door was open. What does he see? See, when the first door was open, he saw himself being caught up to receive revelations from, from the Lord himself. The things that were, the things that are, and the things that will come to pass. So in Revelation 19, another door is open that we see, we see heaven. And we see the Lord Jesus Christ and all his glory coming back. And we are with him. And we are with him and we see him as a lion now, the tribe of Judah coming back and settling this sin, evil issue once and for all. Of taking his promises we have, we have so, just in this study alone on Wednesdays and so forth, saw all the promises of God from hundreds and hundreds of years back. We're going to see the consummation of God's promise back in Deuteronomy. I chose you and I love you, not because you're many, but because you're the smallest clan of the people. I chose my love on you. We're going to see that consummated. We're going to see our Lord doing that when he gathers his people and rescues them in the Armageddon and destroys the evilness of the world and sets up the kingdom that is so prominent in the word of God. We're going to be there with him, co-reigning with him, dwelling with him. Then through the millennium, we're going to see how Christ, not the utopia that the world's ever seen, but how Christ can rule righteously and, and the glories that follow. We're going to see the, the evilness of Satan himself being cast in the lake of fire. We're going to watch the great white throne judgment of all the great and the small of the earth being dead. In sin, being judged for their sins and the awesomeness of that. We are going to watch the heaven and earth flee away at his presence. as wonderful glory. And then we as a church are privileged to watch our Lord create a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Folks, if that doesn't excite you, we're, we're in the wrong place. You know, this is our future. This is what the word of God says. And there are those out there today that, that need to be saved. They need to realize that they're lost and sinful and undone. And if they prolong this area to the death of the body, they're in a predicament they cannot get out of. They're going to a place called Hades. They are in torment and they are awaiting a fearful day of judgment. And when that day comes, they will go into a place called outer darkness, a weeping and gnashing of teeth where the fire is not quenched and the worm is a die. And we could go on and on. These people need to be saved. How do I get saved? You realize that you're lost and done and that you're sinning. You sin against God. You have no hope. God's righteous and you're not. Amen. But Jesus Christ says, He who comes to me, I will no wise cast out. He died on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because God is not going to forsake Jeff forever. So Christ took my punishment on the cross. 
And three days later, he rose from the dead. You come to Christ and you, you turn from your sin. And you turn to the Savior who bore the punishment for your sin. And you ask him today, God, I believe you. I'm undone. I'm holy. You know, like the thief on the cross says, says, you know, don't yell, he's done nothing wrong. I'm a sinner. I've done everything wrong. I deserve judgment. And Christ took my judgment on the cross and God raised him from the dead. And by believing him, I have life in his name. I have forgiveness of sins. And I will not come under condemnation or judgment because Christ has took my judgment. He said, I passed from death into life. That's how we become a Christian. That's how we avoid the judgment of God because judgment is coming. That's what we have to look forward to. The Bible. You can't destroy it. You can't get rid of it. And God said it's by His Word and His Word alone that gives the right understanding of who we are. And we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. I can't do good works to get to heaven. I can't do good enough deeds so that I'll wait my bad deeds. I'm already dead in sin. I've already sinned. I've already desecrated a holy God. I've already spit in his face. I've already gone days and days and days and days, and some of you years and years and years, without even thinking about God, going your own way, doing your own thing. You're a created being, whether you want to admit it or not. By that nature, you're going to be accountable to your creator. Do you want to be accountable to sin in front of a holy God? Or do you want to be do you want to come to the Savior now who's judged and was judged for your sin? And he will clothe you with, with his skins of forgiveness, his robe of righteousness, his standing. So whether you die now or ten years from now, you go immediately in the presence of your Savior who loved you and died for you. Wow. Amen. Father, I thank you for the the word this morning. I thank you for your love and your mercy. And we don't have to be fearful of death. We can be brand new and new creatures in Christ. And Lord, I thank you for these epistles that we've gone through for the last couple of months. I pray that we would have the fervency of, of seriousness, of looking at, at where this world is going. Father, I pray that we wouldn't take that one talent and hide it away and, and say, well, I'm saved, that's good enough. <laughs> Whew. But that we would take it and we would share it. We would take Christ, whether by word, hopefully by word and conduct. But he wins souls is wise. And as Jim Elliott says, that he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot afford to lose. I thank you for your word this morning, Father. I ask that you would just bless us with yourself today in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> From going through judgment, that he's not willing that any should perish in judgment, that all should come to repentance. 
So these people are saying, and again, and to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say, no evil should come upon you. Look at verse 18. For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and perceived and heard his word? Who has marked his word and heard it? Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord has gone forth in fury, a violent whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it perfectly. Look at verse 21 if you're there. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel and caused my people to hear my words, they would have turned from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. Verse 23, Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God far off? Verse 24, Who can anyone hide himself in secret places? So I shall not see him, says the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? You know, deception. Again, there's going to come such a deception that this world is going to know and going to see that everything will be, quote, unquote, connotated as one world, one uniting, and Christian will be the deceptive word. You know, I think that if we look at uh, so many things in the book of Revelation and so many things about the end-time prophecies about this Antichrist or this man of lawlessness, this deceivable one, this one that causes desolation, why, and why at the root of it does he cause desolation? Because he wants to be worshipped as God. When in, in Revelation 5, I believe it is, when John was up there and, they, and the scroll was handed down from the Father and nobody was able to open it, and they all wept, but he says, be of good cheer. The lamb has prevailed. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he is worthy to open the, scroll, the scrolls and loose the book. And what does he do? He opens it up. And what do we have in the first scroll? A, a conqueror riding on a white horse, but it's not the white horse. The white horse isn't until the 19th chapter of Revelation. He goes out to conquer and, and, and to conquer. Destructiveness, deception is everywhere. You know, I've come to realize that that in, in my heart of hearts, I'd rather have a church that's small in number and, and strong in, in Jesus Christ and strong in the Word of God and able to stand these days that are coming. Because they are coming. And we can start seeing little hints of, of the fact that when the church is removed, there's a strong delusion that's going to pervade this world, that they will believe the lie. The lie is that Jesus Christ paid for the sins of the world, and there's no hope of eternal life and forgiveness of sins apart from Him. He's the truth. You know, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to follow by me. And Pilate said an amazing thing when he was standing up to judge what is truth? Because Jesus said, all that are on the truth stand with me on the side of truth. And Pilate says, well, what is truth? Truth is something that, that the world has been grappling with forever. And that's why deception is so rampant, spiritual truth.
You know, I think all of us right off the, the top of, of before I, I get into the heart of this, uh, we need to be thankful for those that have, in our past, that have been uh, responsible for bringing the Word of God, for faithfully bringing the Word of God, for loving the Word of God, for nourishing us, for correcting us when we've gone astray, for being there and wanting and desiring our spiritual growth. You know, again, we, we can't go very far in this. I want to just recap. False teachers, destructive heresies. And what Jesus said in Matthew 24, take heed, which means this is prominence. Understand, listen, take recognition. Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am Christ. This is a very key understanding. Christ means the anointed one. Many will come and say, I have the word of God. Many will come and say, look at all the men, quote unquote, God men that came from the East and the New Age movement, all these things. You know, it just took one man, Maharishi Mashiyogi, to come and inform the Beatles and look at, look at the generation that they influenced. Many people will come in my name and say, I am Christ. Some are bold like David Koresh and other people that say that, yeah, I am Jesus. Louis Farragon, one of the latest ones, uh, and so forth. But the deception comes in when they say, I'm the anointed one. I have a, min, a message of God. And your way is narrow-minded. Your way says that there's only one way. That's too narrow-minded for this sophisticated society. After all, we are individuals. This is the 21st century. We have a lot to offer, but we don't have a lot to offer God. Let's go back to the scripture. And if anybody had a reason to boast before God, Abraham should have. But the Bible says not before God. He can boast before men, but not before God. So, destructiveness. John in his second letter describes the deceivableness of these people. For many deceivers have gone out in the world who do not confess that Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. They do not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, not only proving his, his pre-existence, but the only one that is the hope of mankind. Without Christ, it's judgment. Without Christ, it's perishing. And God said, that is it. And these deceivers will come and will say, wait a minute. You know, okay, Jesus, we can't deny he was a man. But you know what? There's more than one way. You know, there's a lot of religions out there that say there's more than one way. There's some religions that say there's, there's more than one way that come to your door every week or every other week. You know, they're all around us. But yet, because they don't have the, maybe the, the language that we read all the time, we think, well, wait, this is old. This is talking about something else. No, folks, it's here now. I want to re I want to re say a quote from from Tim LaHaye that I think is just excellent on this matter, and then we'll go on. He says many will follow false teachers, especially in the last days. These cults, liberal churches, and occult movements, which are rapidly spreading all over our land, are speaking in the name of Jesus or of the Christ but never of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And they will never talk about God as being the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's insightful. 
We need to thank God that he's raised up people like that. You see, doesn't that add validity to Ephesians 4? Where he gave some as apostles, some as evangelists, some as prophets, some as teachers, some as pastors, for the equipping of the saints, so that we would not be moved to and fro with various winds of doctrine. How dare these people say that these are old documents, we need something new. You know, where does the Bible say that experience runs the day? Where does the Bible say that, that we, we live off experiences from one high peak to the other? It never does. Jesus dwells down in the valley of those that love him. That promise to bring them through the valley of death. That promise to lead them in their ways of understanding. That promise to know exactly when to let them lie down in green pastures and exactly when to go up in the, in the path of righteousness for his namesake. He is the good shepherd that has never left And these false teachers are denying that very existence that Jesus came to give to us. He says in verse 3, again, by covetousness. You know what covetousness is? It is gleaning something that is not yours. Truth does not belong to false shepherds. Truth does not belong to false prophets. Truth does not belong to false teachers. Truth does not belong to lying and saying, of, of lying wonders and signs. Because they're going to exploit you with deceptive words. Listen, I don't want people lying to my kids. I don't want people lying to my wife. I don't want li- people lying to you. I don't want people lying to me. But it says, with not only covetousness, these people with greed are going to take something that's not their own. Listen, the truth belongs to those that will cherish the truth. Belongs to those that will that will guard at all costs. Paul says repeatedly, guard what the Holy Spirit has entrusted to you. Paul says in 1 Timothy that I've been entrusted with the gospel of Christ. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God is going to trust a faithful men. That's why we're told to teach faithful men that will teach also. But it does not belong to falsity. They're going to exploit you with deceptive words. And God, their judgment has not been idle. Their destruction does not lumber. It's, it's been from way back, God has spoken about these people. And it all started in the garden. It actually started before that. But man's deception started in the garden. And that is one of the reasons why that part of the scripture is so much laughed at and regarded as myth. Because you take out that discord in the garden and you and spiritual deception has really no uh, validity to it. Wow. You know, I'm going to go into Jude a lot. Flip over just a little bit. Look at Jude 4. Remember, verse 3, how, how these, these deceptive people will come in with deceptive words. The judgment's not idle. Look at Jude 4. He expounds on this. For certain men have crept in and noticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. They deny him. Jesus said, if you don't have me, you don't have the Father also. They deny this redemptive truth. They've crept in. Where did they come from? Paul was warning, speaking of the church at Ephesus, the same thing in Acts 20. Watch out. Because you're going to be saying the same thing. Where did these people come from? They came from your own midst. They came from supposedly Christian origins, supposedly Christian churches. 
But oh no, they can't come with me. They came from Princeton Seminary. No, no, not knowing that Princeton Seminary has been apostate for years. Most of these people that stand behind the pulpits that have gone to seminary, or a lot of them, not all of them, are the product of the seminary that they spent years being fed under. Where do these people come from? Oh no, they can't be them. Yes, it can be them. Dr. Barnhouse says this way, if you're looking for the devil, look behind the pulpit. That's where the deceiver of righteousness will be. And amongst other places. By covetousness, they're going to exploit you. Look at verse 4. If God did not spare the angels who sinned. These are strong words. You know, and I think that, that what's interesting about, the, about both Paul, the Apostle Paul, Peter, John, and, and Jude, is that they end their wonderful, uh, especially Peter and Paul, they end their wonderful epistles of so much richness with a warning. And it's all about judgment. As we talk about these things, especially in chapter 2 of, of 2 Peter, so uh, uh, linked, if you will, in contentual understanding with Jude. Judgment, judgment, judgment is going to fall on these false teachers. Look at Jude 6. Explains it again. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Judgment. People don't like to be to talk about judgment or to hear about judgment. <clears throat> but the Bible's full of judgment. The Bible is full of the fact that God is God. He's holy and pure. He created everything good. He created humanity to have fellowship with Him in love. And yet because of sin and men going their own way, God must judge sin. He must. If there's any part of uh, if there's any ideology or thinking apart from that fact, God is maligned. He is not represented truthfully. God must judge sin. And he judged yours and mine on the cross when he struck his son instead of you and I in judgment. I rightfully deserve judgment. I rightfully deserve it. I have gone my own way. But God caused all my iniquity to fall on the Lord Jesus Christ and your iniquity too. That's the wonderful thing about the good news. Satan hates the good news. And anybody who stands up for the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have an enemy that is going to try to stop you, going to try to distort you, going to try to, to uh, discourage you, depress you, Rob you of your joy? Twist up the scripture? Yeah, as God really said? Is that true of me? We were speaking some time ago, years ago, uh, we were doing a, uh, uh, a, a Bible study, and we were teaching on the book of Romans. Well, I only made it, this one in, in the book of Romans, till the third chapter, and I was thrown out. You know why we were thrown out? People complain, that can't be me. 
That can't be me. Read the first chapter of Romans that all the world is accountable to God. All the world becomes guilty towards God. Not only accountable, yeah, I'm accountable to you, but I'm not going to be guilty to you. But the language says we all become guilty before God. The, the depravity of sinful nature, the depravity of humanity, they never let me get to Romans 3.22. But now, those are the, some of the greatest words in the Bible. But now, the righteousness of God has been revealed through the prophets. That Jesus Christ is the answer. But you can't tell me that can't be me. Yes, it's you. I, I would amount that that if we if we read the first three uh, the two or three different individuals that really made a fuss that this guy's this you can't take it anymore. And by the way, they went on to replace uh, the book of solid book of Romans and the teaching of sin with the happy book of Philippians because he wanted to teach the joy of Christ. Well, let me tell you. Um, Jesus was fond of telling stories of how men were broken and yet they're alive. These teachers are going to, these false teachers are going to dampen that. And the very thing that gives grace or gives Jesus Christ coming into the world, dying for the sins of the world, this occasion, they are explaining the way. Surely God will not judge. Look at verse 5. He did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood on the world of the ungodly. <laughs> the flood. Again, maligned, twisted, laughed at, well, then, you know, there may have been a flood, but it was a local flood. Or there may have been a flood, but really everything died. Has God really said everything died? Well, we have fossils that prove that the flood wasn't, uh, you know, worldwide. Listen to that debate we have with Ken Ham and uh, Bill Nye. They're going to deny it. It was judgment. God judged the world because... It says that in, in Genesis 6, right before the flood, that he saw that every imagination of man was continually evil. God must judge it completely. He's not just going to judge a part of it and let the other go rampant. Well, it's a great way that you're in the western part of the world because the eastern part of the world, I really judge. Is God that way? No. God has no respect for persons. God judges sin. And turning the cities, verse 6 of Sodom and Gomorrah went through this all into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward live ungodly. An example. Men laugh at that. Look what's happening today with the homosexuality, the LGBT, all this stuff like that. The example was that not only this was going on, but the sexual morality, the anarchy, the, the leaving God out. The men by themselves running amok. That's all sin can do is run amok without God. And God must judge it. Using these great examples. I even knew about the flood before I was a Christian. I had heard about that. I had heard about Sodom and Gomorrah. Everybody hears about Sodom and Gomorrah. If they know what sodomy is and so forth. I heard of these things as a kid. But he said there's examples. God judged these places. The flood was a worldwide flood. God judged. Look at look in Joshua chapter ten, man. Remember when when God said the hailstones down? 
on certain individuals. God has pointed judgment. God has world catastrophe. But nonetheless, God sends judgment. And we're all heading up to chapter 3 when, when the apostle here is talking about God is going to judge the world. By the same word we're talking about here. And false prophets will enter and say, they'll, they'll denounce judgment. There's no judgment. God's not going to judge us. We must understand judgment. Because if we don't understand judgment, folks, listen to this. If we don't understand God and the fact that he must judge sin, we don't understand the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the cross of Christ shows two things to the world blatantly. One, the love of God, and one, the hatred he has of sin. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, the remedy for their sinful condition, will not perish. So God loved the world so much he sent his son. Love unfathomable. But yet, he hates sin so much that those that don't believe in it love will perish in sin because sin was judged at the cross. And false teachers will explain that away somehow. It is not our timing here, because my time is getting short, to explain what all ways that they do explain it away. Flip on some type of, of Christian channels or watch TBN or something. I'm not denouncing all TBN, don't get me wrong, but I have had many, many people uh, say, I'm not going to watch that anymore. I'm, not, I'm saying we need to have discernment. We have the flood. We have Sodom and Gomorrah. We see in verse 7, a delivered righteous lot who is opposed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day and seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. That word temptation. That word temptation means that it is set on somebody's ruin. It is set on somebody's captive you know, uh, allurement, temptation is always there to capture. You know, the Bible says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Jude, at the end of his epistle, Jude 24, says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Before we leave this, this uh, subject of judgment, I want to say this. One uh, passage from Psalm 11, Psalm 11 and a passage from Isaiah 66. Psalm 11, 6 says this, Upon the wicked he will rain coals, Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. What is the lake of fire described as? Lake burning with brimstone. It's a fiery judgment. God has pronounced that men apart from Christ are wicked. Men do not want to look at themselves as wicked. They do not. That's why we were cast aside out of teaching the book of Romans because we were too harsh. That's why men today will not accept the fact that they're wicked. Me? I'm wicked? 
My grandmother, who was, I spent majority of my childhood, I loved her immensely. If she, she died when I was young, if she didn't have Christ, she's, she, she's labeled as wicked. And if she did have Christ, she was a wicked person saved by grace. People don't want to look at that, but they must look at that. People would rather go, tell me how beautiful I am. You know? Tell me how beautiful I look. I mean, I mean, you know, uh, wow, I just got my hair done. How, tell me how beautiful I look. You know, I'm a great guy. I want to know how much of a great guy I am. Well, you know, if, if you were to be judged by a human court, well, maybe. But you're to be judged by the divine court. God himself is the judge. He determines what is right, what is wrong, what is godly, what is ungodly, what is wicked and what is not. And the only one not wicked in his sight that walked this earth is the Lord Jesus Christ for you and for I. So the cross of Christ, the love of God is shown uh, in the apex of history. So has his hatred on sin. God hates sin. And he judged it in Christ. And now these wicked, filthy dreamers, these false prophets and false teachers, look at the example of history, how God judged the world. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. But he reserved the unjust for the day of judgment. Look at verse 10, especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. The Bible says in, in Psalm 119, uh, and elsewhere to keep us from presumptuous sins, Proverbs 30 and elsewhere. They're self-willed. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. They're not afraid to speak evil of what they don't know and of what is not in the realm of the, the heavenly realms. They speak evil of. They're self-willed. They're not afraid of God. They're not afraid of judgment. They're not afraid of anything. They're their own person, they're the captain of their fate, and they want to teach you that. That's what all humanism is all about. Package it as Satanism, package it as health help, package it what you will. It's all humanism. It is all teaching man that man can do apart from God. That man's going to be fine apart from God. Man is not going to be fine apart from God. You know, if you look at, at chapter 3, verse 1, this is what Peter's doing. Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle of both which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. You know? You know if you know a lot of these things. Even if we, we, we you know, think about these things or what have you or have dealt with these things personally. Paul says, and so does Peter, that he's going to stir up. Make, make these things known. They're leaving. They want to impress it because when they're gone, they want the people that they're talking to be able to stand up and to know right from wrong. Look at verse 11, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. In other words, they don't take judgment into their own hands. Judgment is reserved for God. Wrath is reserved for him and him alone. This is what Isaiah says. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpse of men who have transgressed against me. 
says the Lord. For their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. They shall be abhorred unto all flesh. Like we said last week, that is exactly the terminology Jesus used in Mark chapter 9. Several times, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. We better give heed to the one that says, I am he. And if you don't believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. That is strong language. Ah, you Christians are narrow-minded. Yes, I am narrow-minded. I'm very narrow-minded. Because Jesus is. There's two roads. Yeah, there's a broad road. Hey, I'm, I'm an intellectual. Hey, you know. Live and let live, you know. And if there's a broad road, Jesus says, there I am. You choose. Are you going to go on the road where he's at and stand on his word and believe every word of it? Or are you going to stand on the broad road and have the applause of men and be a great guy? And, and you know, and I can live with your theology because it lets me breathe. It lets me be me and, and, and curiously uh, satisfy the burning conscience I have uh, that all men have. You know? what, what is it? What's the choice that we're going to make? I think I'll, I'll end here. I, you know, the rest of this chapter, before we get into chapter 3, is, you know, basically the depravity of false teachers. They're, they're depraved. They're cursed children. They've forsaken the right way. They've gone in the way of Balaam. They don't know the way of righteousness. Uh, you know, they're full of iniquity. Uh, describing in verse 18 and down, they're empty. They're, they're, you know, they're full of error. They're full of, of hypocrisy. They're full of sin. They promise the way of liberty, but really what they're doing is they're capturing you. They're slaves of corruption. And they're describing these perfectly and understanding what the Bible says about these people. And then in chapter 3, we're going to get to the fact that he is going to say, Hey, you know what? Despite all of this, now that you know that, I'm going to tell you what they're going to do. They're going to come out and they're going to be mockers. They're going to run out to their own will. They're going to say, where is he coming? Is he coming? What? Who? I don't even know this stuff, what you're talking about. Everything's gone on the same. I remember 50 years ago, the sun rose in the, in the east and set in the west. You see this birthmark? I had it when I can remember five years old. I'm 65. It's still there. In other words, things are going on. What, what is this that you're talking about? You know, there's a, there's a great pronouncement in the Word of God in several different ways how God equates eternity with time. Okay, we see it in Psalm 90. We see it in Psalm, or we see it here where Paul says a thousand years is like one day to the Lord. You know, God is not like man. His ways aren't our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. In fact, there's highest from the heaven above the earth. Time is something that man is accustomed to. But when you when you are born again, you start you're in the spiritual realm. You start you start seeing things from God's perspective, and you start looking at the Bible as God's word of God, God's word. You look at the lens of this human history through God's perspective, and things start coming into line. These false teachers don't have that. So with covetous words and everything, they're going to malign you. They're going to lie to you. close with this. I know that uh, several of you know this, and I've, I've said it before, but years and years ago, um, Josh McDowell used to go on the campuses of, of this land, and he made a statement that I've, I, I learned early on. I've used it many, many times myself. 
Jesus said uh, in John 14, 6, on the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, includes you, comes to the Father but by him. Either he is a self-deluded maniac, an egotistical man, or he is who he claims to be. And all of us at one point or another in our life must grapple with that. So we might as well grapple with that now and take the side of the truth. So when these false teachers and false philosophies and, and the Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, which is prevailing in the land now, it's prevailing in the land of the first century, it's, it's gaining speed as we speak. And it simply says they deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. They deny that there's only one way to God. They deny that he came into this world by a virgin. They deny the fact that he and he alone answers sin's tyranny. They deny the fact that without him, we are all doomed to judgment. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And he said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. Mike, you want to pray, please? Father, please give us greater insight and uh, appreciation for your majesty, for your justice, Lord, that our inner man would be built up, that we wouldn't fall away from our first love, Lord, that, that we would grow in, in mm -hmm. love as we eagerly await the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ when he'll be marveled at among us. So, mm. 